From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With 11 ballot measures on the statewide November ballot, what's the big theme for voters? Taxes and fees. We'll break down what's at stake. Then, we tend to think of migration as something people do or animals. But plants? The book The Journey of Trees chronicles how human interaction, infestations like the bark beetle, and now climate change affect forest migration, and what can happen when people try to speed it up. Also, remembering a Colorado Marine who was a trailblazer with the Marines' war dog program in World War II. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. And two Colorado women lead the effort to reopen live theater on Broadway in New York City, from masks to musicals. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. 11. That is how many changes to Colorado's laws and constitution voters will be asked to decide on this fall. It's a long ballot, and now that it's officially set, I've asked CPR's Andy Kenny to join me on air for a quick preview of what's on it. Hello. Hi, Andy. First of all, 11 sounds like a lot, is it? Well, kind of, yeah. I, I think a lot of voters are going to get past the presidential and the Senate races that are getting so much attention, and maybe their eyes will bulge out a little when they see 11 different, pretty complicated and long ballot questions on there. This is actually one of the longer ones we've seen in the last decade, just in terms of the number of initiatives on there. But we've had a few of these real kind of thick ballots in the last few cycles. So can we lump any of these together? Like, is there a theme that covers a bunch of them? Money. Yes. Texas. <laughs> um, so one of these, one of these, for example, would slightly, slightly cut the state's income tax rate. That's going to be uh, a quite impactful one if it passes. And they're also looking at uh, another big, complicated change that would affect how much money property owners pay toward taxes in the future. Okay, so let's start with that income tax one. You said that it's a slight cut. What does that mean for people? Well, according to the state analysts, if you do the math, um, the cut would be something like $60 a year for your median household here in Colorado. And backers say that, that those savings would help out families and kind of boost spending in the economy. But of course, that also adds up to money that the state government would not be collecting, something like $170 million a year in reduced revenue for the state government. And as we know, the state's already dealing with some pretty intense budget cuts coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. So if it passes, that means some serious decisions about, uh, again, more decisions about school budgets, health programs, and more. So we're going to see probably a pretty intense fight over that one. Interesting thing about this one, Avery, is that conservative groups, or actually libertarian group, put it on the ballot in response to the idea that liberals and progressives might put their own tax changes but the liberal tax proposal fell apart, didn't happen, and so now we only have this conservative tax proposal standing on its own on the ballot. Oh, interesting. So staying on money here, what else are we seeing when it comes to taxes and fees? Well, we've got groups that are also asking voters to approve new sources of money for the state government. One of the no most notable ones would be on tobacco and nicotine. It would really sharply increases increase the sales taxes that people are paying on those products. It would actually create a brand new tax on vaporizer products. And then it would, over the course of several years, it would multiply cigarette taxes by a few times over, 
getting it up to more than $2 a pack by something like 2027. And why tobacco? It's kind of an easy target. It's relatively hard to convince voters to approve a lot of taxes. They, they really, in Colorado, don't have a strong track record voters of approving other types of taxes. But the so-called sin taxes, which is, you know, gambling, smoking, cannabis, uh, are a little bit more favorable. And even those don't always get passed, including the most recent effort to raise tobacco taxes. But, yeah, people are a little more amenable to it. Also, these vaping products are so new that they aren't really covered by existing tobacco taxes. And so health officials say that with the use of vaping products rising so quickly that maybe they should fill that gap. Now, on the other side of this, I know that opponents to taxes like these point out that they're regressive. So that means they tend to impact lower income consumers. Mm. What other money measures have not hit yet? Well, there's one that's going to be really closely watched. And this is not just money, but also a major change in how working in Colorado as as an employee will work. It's called paid family and medical leave. This has been a long sought after change for a lot of workers' rights advocates. It would guarantee that most employees in Colorado, most um, employees would have the opportunity to take three or up to four months in some cases of leave from their jobs for a family medical uh, emergency or situation, including having a child. And they would still be getting at least some of their pay while they took that time off. This sounds a lot like the paid family leave program lawmakers have been debating in the state legislature. Yeah, that's right. Um, Just like what we've been talking about in the past, this one would be funded by basically a fee on workers and on their employers, equivalent to about 1% of most people's paychecks. Um, Democratic lawmakers have been talking about this for a few years now. And this year, it really looked like they might pass it. Democrats have such strength in the state legislature right now, but they didn't. And so now we're going to see maybe voters will approve it instead. But that's kind of a gamble, Avery, because, you know, while it's another chance to get this law passed, if voters reject it, that creates a lot of political ammunition against any future effort to do it. If they try to pass a law along this this lines after it fails at the ballot, you'll hear people saying, well, voters didn't want it. Sounds like they're taking a big risk then. It could be or it could work. And there's another big initiative we need to talk about, right? Yeah, hate to tell you, we have to talk (laughs) about the Gallagher Amendment. And what is the Gallagher Amendment? Well, this is something that you've probably at least heard about if you've been in the orbit of Colorado politics. It's been looming over the state, basically. Maybe looming is not the word, but it's been in existence since 1982. And what it's supposed to do is limit how much of the government is funded by residential property taxes. Uh, trying to put more of the onus on commercial and industrial taxes. But it ended up working in some unexpected ways. And it's one of the big factors in the crazy calculus that controls how the government gets funded here in Colorado. So this year, there's actually a bipartisan effort to get rid of it. So what exactly are they trying to change? Let me make this as quick as I can. Gallagher basically has a lot of side effects. And one is that despite the fact that the state has had an enormous residential real estate boom in the last few decades, Gallagher basically says you can't add all that value to the tax base. And it's had this effect where it constantly ratchets down everybody's property tax bills so that we don't go over this kind of artificial limit. And it means that we have one of the lowest base property tax uh, rates or ratios in the country At the same time, it's also made it a lot harder to fund a lot of things like schools and fire districts and other stuff, including like local governments. Anyway, the proposal this year is basically to repeal Gallagher and prevent future automatic tax cuts that would have amounted to 
hundreds of millions of dollars of lost revenue for governments around the state. So at the end of the day, they're trying to stop tax cuts. Who's behind this? So this was put on the ballot by state lawmakers. I mentioned it was bipartisan, but it still might surprise people to hear that it had support from both Democrats and Republicans. The reason for that is the Gallagher has a really sharp effect on rural areas in particular. So it's become a a statewide issue. And this cut that was looming, the next one, would probably have hap- would probably happen in 2021. And it would have really hurt a lot of these smaller counties, um, especially, you know, uh, the ones that have a little bit less population. And they're already dealing with a pandemic. That's right. Any predictions on how this will work out? I'd say it has a better chance in most years. It was surprising to a lot of people that it even got onto the ballot that it had this bipartisan legislative support. And you got to look at the fact that the language that the lawmakers want to put on the ballot essentially starts with the words without increasing property taxes, which is a huge thing. And then it goes straight into talking about fire departments and schools, hospitals and ambulances. But, you know, there are still limited government groups that are ready to spend money to oppose it. So we'll see. Okay, lightning round. What are some (laughs) other topics on the ballot? Oh, God, how much time do I have? Um, (laughs) One of the most attention-getting might actually be one that would reintroduce wolves in the western part of Colorado. That's going to divide on some really interesting kind of partisan and moral lines. Uh, There's also a ban on abortion after 22 weeks, which could get a lot of voters out to the ballot one way or another. And there, even beyond all these state ones, which we haven't even discussed all of them, there's going to be ones from your local government. I know that Denver has quite a lot in particular. So you're saying voters should probably be prepared to spend some extra time thinking about the end of their ballots. Study up. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Thank you. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. You can find other more on the other initiatives that will appear on Colorado's ballots in November at CPR.org. As we mentioned, voters will decide if wolves should be formally reintroduced to the western slope. But there's a chance a wild-born wolf pup is already living in northwest Colorado. If confirmed, a sighting of that pup earlier this summer could be the first evidence of wolves breeding here since the 1940s. CPR's Sam Brash reports. To start this story, we really need to take a step back to last winter. That's when state biologists confirmed six wolves were living near the Wyoming border. Lone wolves had wandered into the state before, but this was the first group since the 1940s. Rebecca Farrell is with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We know based on the scat samples, DNA that were taken this winter, um, that we have sibling relationships. So what that tells us is that there's a breeding pair that has put forth, you know, these siblings, at least at some point in the past few years. And if mom and dad are, in fact, still breeding, they'll probably do it again here in Colorado. They mate for life, really. Um, They have long-term relationships. So last spring, CPW biologists started doing something sort of strange. They'd step out of their trucks, face different directions, and howl, listening for a response something like this. That's a group of howling wolf pups. And if biologists hear those sounds, they can find dens and maybe confirm wolves are breeding. CPW hasn't released the results of those surveys just yet. Right now, the only evidence is one sighting of one animal. Despite our continuing monitoring efforts in that area, we don't have any photographic evidence or scat to provide additional confirmation at this time. So while the evidence is thin, it comes at a political crossroads for the endangered species. This November, Colorado voters decide whether to reintroduce gray wolves to the western slope, and it looks like it's going to pass. 
One poll found 84% support statewide, but not everyone is on board. Wolves in Colorado are, are bad for the economy, they're bad for ranchers, they're bad for farmers, they're bad for uh, a lot of things in this state. That's Sean Martini with the Colorado Farm Bureau. He's also a spokesperson for a campaign against the initiative. But that said, if it happens naturally, it's something we have to live with. Uh, but why, why try and force nature's hand through an initiative process? And if there are puppies in Colorado, Martini says all the more reason to give nature some time. But that's not how Kevin Crook sees it. He's an ecologist who studies this topic, but stays neutral on reintroduction. And he says the important question isn't whether wolves are breeding. It's whether enough wolves are breeding. Just to have a small number of animals, six or seven, would not have a high probability of persistence over the long term. Biologists refer to this as viability. A population can only survive if there are enough individuals spread out over a big enough area to persist over the long term. By that definition, Crook says Colorado's small wolf population remains at risk. It is true that if wolves were reintroduced, that would increase the probability that wolves would fully recover to form a self-sustaining population. One biologist who is advocating for Colorado reintroduction is Mike Phillips. He's a Montana state senator who led wolf recovery efforts in Yellowstone National Park in the 1990s. Even if the sighting is real, Phillips says there's a strong argument for letting wolves loose in Colorado. One puppy seen two months ago with no corroborating physical evidence does not a population make, certainly does not a viable population make, Another point, Phillips says reintroduction could empower ranchers and farmers worried about the predators. As a federally endangered species, wolves are completely protected if they migrate to Colorado on their own. But if they're reintroduced, the feds could give the state far more control. So the question is, if you think they're coming, then what way is available to you to get the best deal possible? Well, the best deal possible is available through proactive reintroduction efforts. Phillips says that's what worked in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, where wolves are now reestablished. And he thinks the same would hold true in Colorado, both for people and for future generations of wolves. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. We know that animals migrate, and we know their populations can move from place to place temporarily, sometimes permanently, when their habitats change. It turns out that trees can migrate too. That's what science journalist Zach St. George's book, The Journey of Trees, is all about. Zach, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Obviously, trees don't uproot themselves and move. How does a forest migrate? Yeah, so it's... um you know, it's a it's a generational endeavor. Um, trees uh, produce seeds, and seeds uh, sprout, and um, trees die. And um, kind of as, as that happens over time, um, if it happens in one direction or the other, uh, the the forest migrates. Um, and and what causes it to happen is conditions change and allow seeds to to survive in new places. Um, and uh, so what causes the migration of forests is climate change. So seeds get scattered, they survive in one direction, and they migrate in that direction eventually through generations of trees. The last 11,000 okay. years have been relatively steady. We're entering a period where it's changing faster and to a much greater degree. Um, so tell me more about why that's happening now and why that sparked your book. 
Yeah. So around the world, um, scientists have tracked uh, species of trees moving toward the poles and upslope. Um, they're seeing tree lines shift. Um, and and so, yeah, you know, the last 11,000 years the, um, since the last ice age, uh, of course, things have not been perfectly steady, but, um, you know, it, it's been compared to what we're experiencing now, it's been relatively steady. So, uh, the migration and, and changes to the world's forests were, were pretty easy to miss for most of that period. Um, and now we're entering a point where um, these things are happening really quickly. Uh, there was just a big study of the Western Hemisphere that found um, really everywhere scientists looked, they found uh, plant communities changing. Um, and so some of that will be really subtle. You know, it might be uh, just trees kind of popping up in new places, um, and it might be really easy to miss for people. Um, but the other side of it, where, where species, uh, where their ranges are contracting, um, that might be really uh, hard to miss. So you see things like um, more fires as you have stressed out trees. You might have, um, you know, insects uh, attacking stressed out trees. So, so I know in the Rockies, there's been a lot of beetle kill. Um, in recent decades, um, or you might have uh, things like aspen dieback, where where warmer temperatures are causing stress. Um, so, so the, these are all facets of uh, forest migration. So trees are changing naturally in response to the changing world, but humans have also tried to intervene. Tell me a little bit about that, and maybe about Con- Connie Barlow. Sure. Yeah. So the the, the question that starts my book is: uh, Should people intervene and and try to help trees uh, migrate um, to places where we think they'll be better suited in the future. Um, and, and it starts with this woman named Connie Barlow, who for, for a couple of decades has been, has made it her mission um, to help this tree called the Florida Terea. It's a very rare tree in uh, Western Florida uh, to try and help it move um, north and, and uh, to where she, she thinks it would be better suited. Um, it's been suffering from a fungus in Florida, and so she thinks it's uh, that's a, a symptom of a climatic mismatch, and that this tree, this species, ought to be further north. So the tree is actually um, in the wrong place. Really, yeah, that's right. Basically, she thinks the idea is that that it got left behind at the end of the last ice age for whatever reason. It it uh, wasn't able to migrate north when it should have, um, and so so. She's been trying to move it north with a group of volunteers called the Terea Guardians. Um, and it's been really controversial among, uh, you know, traditional conservationists because um, and ecologists, this is, because this is not how we've done conservation for the, the last hundred years. You know, we, we, we have the story of unintended consequences is a big story in biology. So, it's, so the idea of actually intervening is controversial. It sounds like it's somewhat ongoing, but has the approach seemed to work at all? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's hard to say. I mean, it's been 20 years, so they do, or 15 years, I guess. So they do have uh, instances where, um, you know, the trees that they've planted have grown up to produce their own trees. Um, is it a successful strategy? I, I don't think it's clear yet. But um, I think a lot of conservationists around the world, conservationists and scientists, are looking at the possibility of, of um moving trees or needing to move trees and other slow species um, 
because, uh, you know, climate change right now is, is happening very quickly um, and humans have uh, developed much of the world. So many of the routes that used to be open are, are uh, closed to species now. So I think this is something we're going to be uh, considering and, and talking about a lot more in the future. So the idea is that trees may not be migrating fast enough. Here in Colorado, the forests are one of our biggest natural resource assets. They draw tourists, they sustain ecosystems, they inspire outdoor recreationists. We're definitely seeing some of the effects of climate change on our trees, though. Drought, wildfires, bark beetles, just to name a few of the threats to Colorado's trees. What are we looking at in terms of tree migration here? Yeah, I... um Frankly, I can't speak super specifically to uh, the migration in Colorado, um, but but as I said, uh, I think you can view these these um, things like trees dying from drought or uh, water stress and, uh, and and from insects. I think you can view these as kind of facets of forests rearranging themselves in response to climate change, and um, you know I think we're going to see. Uh, a lot of dead trees in the future, um, and and um, it might be harder to notice. I think there's also going to be a lot of trees sprouting in new places. I think we're just going to see, in general, a lot of rearrangement uh, to our forests and to our to our uh, plant communities in general. So um, I think it's useful to kind of view these uh, seemingly uh, separate events as kind of pieces of that bigger. Uh, change that's, that's underway. And you say that you could have told the same story with different trees and you could even have told it with other plants. Enjoyed what you wrote. You said you can't hug, you rather you can hug a tree, try hugging a quill wart. So in a sense, you chose trees not because they're outliers in climate migration, but because people are hardwired to care more about trees and other plants. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I kind of jokingly, I mean, I think trees are the only shape of plant that most people really care about. Um, you know, they're big, they're slow. Everyone's familiar with what they are. We, we care about plants, uh, about trees rather. We have, we have a really deep symbolic relationship with trees. Um, and so, yeah, I think they're, I think they're a useful example, uh, for many reasons. Um, but that that said, you know, climate change uh, will rearrange all species, not just mm-hmm. trees. So, you know, when you talk about trees, they cover a third of the land on uh-huh. Earth, and they're they're home to countless other species. So this is this is a uh, probably uni- a universal mm-hmm. phenomenon. Thank you so much, Zach. Zach St. George is a science writer living in Baltimore, Maryland. He's the author of The Journey of Trees: A Story About Forests, People, and the Future. Women in the newly formed U.S. Space Force have been making headlines in recent weeks. The service just promoted its first woman three-star general and recently appointed the nation's first all-woman space operations team. We talked with two of the team members last week on Colorado Matters. Top Space Force leaders say the branch is making gender and racial diversity a core value from the start. CPR's Dan Boyce tells us critics see a lot of barriers to that. First Lieutenant Kelly McKay serves with the all-female Space Operations Squadron, stationed at Schriever Air Force Base near Colorado Springs. They command one of the country's GPS satellites. I've obviously never gotten to work on an all-female crew before. These were women that I've wanted to work with. They're close friends of mine and co-workers. 
And she knew it would make a bold statement for the brand new Space Force. You don't see a ton of women in STEM fields, and the military is certainly still male-dominated too. I'm hoping that women will see that they have more opportunities than they might have realized growing up. As long as they are actively seeking out the women to come there, they have a great opportunity to be the service that leads the way. Don Christensen is president of the nonprofit Protect Our Defenders, an organization focused on reducing discrimination in the military. He says the all-female team follows in the tradition of the Air Force, which the Space Force split from just last December. The Air Force is better than the other services when it comes to gender. In representation, that is, the Air Force is almost a quarter female. However, when Christensen's team analyzed military data, they also found... Uh, When it comes to racial disparity, the Air Force was the worst. They find black airmen 70% more likely than their white peers to get court-martialed or receive other punishments. The Air Force's own data shows that trend getting worse in recent years. On this vote, the yeas are 98, the nays are zero. Nevertheless, in just the last few months, a couple of milestones. The first black Air Force Academy superintendent and the first black Air Force chief of staff. In the historic nomination of General Charles Q. Brown Jr. as the United States Air Force chief of staff is confirmed. How much to make of this depends on who you talk to. While we're very proud of General Brown, it's a joke. Yvonne Pacheco is a recently retired Air Force commanding officer. It's a photo op. See, we like black people. We like minorities. Yay, we promoted them. So don't complain anymore, okay? And we're like, yeah, okay. So what we want to see is action. What policies are you going to drive? What changes are you going to drive? Pacheco lost her rank in a dispute over sick leave. She had to take legal action to regain it and secure her benefits. She argues the Space Force's command and discrimination reporting structures are all inherited from the Air Force, and she says they're flawed. And if you don't restructure it, I, I honestly, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that you'll be able to restructure. I don't know. I, I just think they might continue to get away with it, unfortunately. Pacheco says as discrimination charges work their way up the chain of command, senior officers don't have the right incentives to act on them. Instead, she says they often suppress such reports to avoid looking bad themselves. The Space Force's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Carrie Baker, says that will not be the culture in her service. She says they've already placed heavy emphasis on developing open-minded leaders and pushing them to learn about unconscious biases. They're going to be shaped to encourage honest communication, even to the point where one should be fearless enough to speak to their leadership about concerns that they have without concern of retribution. Baker says the Space Force has targeted outreach initiatives to recruit women and people of color. They're holding mentoring panels to help those service members advance. Keep your eye on us. We're going to make you proud. In San Antonio, Texas, Tanya Wood now works as a civilian IT professional with the Department of Defense. Prior to that, she was an Air Force intelligence analyst, a job very similar to the computer and desk-bound roles found in the Space Force today. She's black and says misogyny and racism were rampant. Not getting a fair seat at the table, having to prove myself constantly, having to prove my technical ability, trying to prove how smart I am, if, if you will, constantly being challenged by my male colleagues. 
She's pleased to hear about that new all-female Space Force team, but she's still pessimistic it's a sign of systemic change. She compares the all-female crew to the Tuskegee Airmen, those heralded black fighter pilots from World War II. That was an experiment, but was it sustainable? You know, do we still have that level of diversity now? Uh, Did it go beyond an experiment? And if the Space Force still has what she describes as the archaic discrimination reporting processes of the Air Force, then what's the real difference? In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. This report is part of the American Homefront Project, stories about veterans and the military from CPR and its partners. It's made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We want to take a moment now to remember Marine Private First Class Homer Finley of Longmont. He died August 20th at the age of 95. Finley was part of the Marines' War Dog Platoon during World War II. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. Dogs of many breeds rally to the colors. Finley handled messenger dogs. He shared his memories with my colleague Ryan Warner last November. Homer, thank you for having us in your home. You're welcome. You worked with what was called a war dog platoon. What were the dogs trained to do? Number one, we were the first Marine war dog platoon to be formed in World War II. And we had two types of dogs. We had what we call messenger dogs, and the rest of the platoon was made up of Doberman pinchers, And they were trained for scouting and attack work. Tell me what the messenger dogs did. I mean, their name is fairly straightforward. And what kinds of dogs they were? We had three messengers. There was Thor, Jack, and Caesar. And each dog had two handlers. And the idea of the messenger dogs, they wore special collars where we could put messages in the collars And usually one handler would stay in the command post. The other handler would go out with a patrol. Vital information is hastily written out for dispatch to the outpost position to the rear. An emergency ammunition supply is urgently needed if the patrol is to hold out. And instead of a soldier runner, the messenger dog will do the job. His speed and size make him a tough target. And there's no halt or backward glance until he comes to the ammunition supply point. Of course, they also start shooting at our dogs. (laughs) And Caesar was our best messenger dog. Tell me about Caesar. I want to know all about him. Well, he was just easily trained. He was very intelligent. And actually, there's a memorial of Caesar in some museum someplace. Do you think a dog like Caesar was aware of the risks. Do you sense that the dogs knew that the work was dangerous? Well, we trained them to ignore gunfire because in combat, it's a lot of big, noisy shooting and yelling, and they did their duties beautifully. He asks for no reward. A pat on the back, any little acknowledgement by his master are sufficient. The whole war dog ideal was successful, and today it still goes on in big time. The dogs no doubt saved lives. Tell me about that. Our dogs, 
were trained to alert the handler whenever there was a foreign, another person or whatever. So they, we had much fewer ambushes. And, you know, we trained the dogs to a cack on command and uh, somebody had to be a spook and put the padded clothes on to agitate the dogs. Part of our training sometimes we'd take the dog out and hide and then the rest of the guys would come along with the other dogs trying to find. And uh, I could fall asleep in, under a bush or something, and my dog would let me know when anybody came near. His mission of success, the dog's complete happiness is expressed in his every movement. A portrait of service, obedience, and devotion to the job. Especially at night in a foxhole, a dog's a pretty nice companion. Because if anybody starts stirring around, they're going to know it. And when you go into combat, you're sleeping with them, and you're living with them, and you're feeding them, and you really fall in love with your dog. And uh, it was sad. I think Caesar was the first one to get wounded. He finished his message run, even though he had been shot. And uh, then they brought him in to an aid station on a stretcher, and uh, he revived and did more. In fact, I think he went on beyond Bougainville. Bougainville, this is an island east of Papua New Guinea, and this was a, a U.S. invasion of that island. What became of the dogs after the war? Well, we were more or less an experimental unit, but we learned that people were volunteering their dogs the idea that if the dog survived the war and was used, they would be first detrained, and then the owner, original owner could have them back if they wanted them. Of course, some of the dogs could not be detrained, and I think Camp Lejeune was where they did most of that type of training. And I took a trip to the war dog area, you know, the training area, and I saw one of my dogs in one of the cages. And I, I made a comment to the guy that was showing me around. I said, There's a dog I had over on Bougainville. And he said, well, he's pretty vicious, so you better be careful. Don't get too close to him. And I said, well, Jack is going to remember me, I know. So and this kind of tears me up when I think about it. But uh, uh, I did step into the, the run, through the gate, into the run where the dog was. He knew me right away, put his paws up on my shoulder and started licking my face. And it was just like a family reunion, you know. Finley of Longmont speaking with Ryan Warner last November. Finley was part of the Marines' war dog platoon during World War II. He died August 20th at the age of 95. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Last year, Gail went to the hospital to deliver her first child. After nearly 30 hours in labor, she remembers what the nurse said. 
after catching sight of a note in her medical chart from months earlier. She goes, I'm sending the umbilical cord and I'm putting cotton balls in your child's diaper to test for THC since she used it during pregnancy. The uncertain overlap of legal weed and policies meant to protect children on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. One of the many unfortunate things we've lost because of the pandemic, karaoke. Pretty difficult to do that while social distancing. But two Colorado women have found a way. Jacqueline Thrapp is a theater producer who works on and off Broadway. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi there. And Rose Van Dyne is a performer and a music director in New York City. Welcome, Rose. Hi, thank you. You're bringing karaoke back to New York City's Broadway. Masks and musicals lets audience members sing show tunes as long as they're wearing a mask and they stand behind a glass partition. On the outside, always looking in. Jacqueline, that's you performing at the opening night for Masks and Musicals. Jacqueline, I assume you're not typically the one performing your works? Uh, No, not usually. So it was kind of fun because we just had opening night last week, and then we have another round two tonight, and we'll keep it going until winter hits. But, uh, yeah, I don't usually perform. I'm the host and producer of Masks and Musicals, so what we're trying to do is bring live theater back, and in the spirit of that, I hopped on stage and my pal recorded me uh, singing Darevan Hansen, a song from Darevan Hansen. Fun. Now, Masks and Musicals takes place outside, steps from the Broadway theater that currently houses Wicked, and each audience member gets a chance to sing a show tune accompanied by Rose's live piano. But Rose, what if they don't want to sing? <laughs> um, uh, well, of course, it's all right. If people don't want to sing, they can definitely come and listen. But we've found that with the encouragement of your friends, you know, sometimes we're able to bring more people on the stage. They just need a little extra confidence. And we have a wide variety of repertoire that people can choose from. Or if you have a song that you want to sing yourself, um, you can bring that as well. Sounds like real karaoke spirit, healthy amount of encouragement and peer pressure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and alcohol. Oh, alcohol too. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. I understand that Masks and Musicals was born out of a desire to bring some music back to the city. Is that right, Jacqueline? Absolutely, because the venues have been shut down since March, the Broadway venues and the off-Broadway venues. So there's this big craving to not just perform, but also to watch performances. And that's something that New York has been very slow at because we're taking our time to open up. So now that we have that, I mean, we're really bringing the spirit of Broadway back steps away from all these venues. So you see people walking by and stopping to look, some people singing, and it's such a fun time and something we haven't had in a long time. So it sounds like Broadway's scene really hasn't bounced back yet. Unlike other places, we're starting to see a resurgence of theater. Even here in Denver, we're seeing more productions get off the ground. So it's, it's not back yet. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Broadway won't be back until next year. And it's interesting because even the West End out in London, they're now starting to have performances as well. So Broadway really is taking its time, which makes sense because New York is so packed and we still got to control the coronavirus pandemic. So they're taking their time. And we're just there's a lot of performers out there who want 
that opportunity to be able to create again. And that's what I'm happy we're able to do with masks and musicals, even though it's small and there's only limited seating and limited amount of slots to sing. If people sign up, they totally 100% can sing. And are you hoping that other producers and actors will take this as a cue to do other sorts of creative things that let people enjoy theater and social distance? I hope so. I really do because we don't have too much of that. They have some comedy shows in the city, but there's, I mean, we have all the Broadway stars here and willing to do stuff. So I hope that Broadway producers see what we're doing with the masks and the clear barrier. We have a 10 foot, 10 by 10 clear barrier separating the pianist and the performers and then 12 feet separating the performer from the audience. So I hope that other people see what we're doing and then get that uh, spark to also do something of their own. So then it turns into this domino effect of more music being made uh, and performed in the city. So I understand that you don't want these masks to feel just like they're there for safety reasons. You want them to feel more purposeful. How are you doing that? Yeah, Rose, why don't you go to ahead? make these masks hot. It's a hot item. Yeah, let's let Rose take it over. Take it over, Rose. <laughs> um, we've been uh, lucky enough to, to create branded masks for this um, show. So um, for the first uh, few weeks of performances, people who come to the show and want to sing um, can receive a free mask uh, with the brand Masks and Musicals to help us spread the word, but also to encourage people to understand that we're taking safety very seriously and um, that we're really trying to take every precaution in order to make everyone feel comfortable. And Rose, how do you think that the pandemic is going to leave its mark on theater and how audiences view theater? Um, I think that uh, we're, we have a trek ahead of us. Um, even after theaters open, I think there might be a mentality with um, some audiences not feeling comfortable coming and joining in, uh, in large groups. But I think that the more that we can get the pandemic um, under control, the more um, we can either have a vaccine or some kind of mass immunity that um, people will feel more comfortable to go out and enjoy the arts because it's something that we're all craving and really missing. And um, as Actors' Equity also creates standards for most regional and Broadway houses um, to uh, have safety precautions in line from both the actors and the audience members, um, I think that we'll all be excited for the day that uh, we can all join together again. I also wonder, what projects did each of you expect to be involved in this fall and in the before times? Jacqueline, why don't you go first? Yeah, well, I'm really excited about this, actually. I have three audio dramas coming to Audible and pretty much any streaming platform. And we do have Broadway stars and big voiceover stars in my audio dramas. And I wrote them during quarantine. And they're all holiday themed. We have Hanukkah haunting out in a few weeks in October. Then we have Christmas Pitch, which is like a Hallmark style romance. Then we have uh, Christmas Fart, which is a comedy. And that's out in December. That sounds like that's a really great way to pivot. Rose, tell me about how you've pivoted from what you thought you'd be doing the fall to what you're doing now. Definitely. Um, well, I worked as both an actor and a pianist, a music director before the pandemic hit, um, but also an educator. And so I've been able to um, up a lot of my own uh, personal um, education classes that I'm able to teach online. Um, but in the theater world, I've been working closely with an off-Broadway theater called Out of the Box Theatrics. We just produced an entirely online musical of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, 
which was definitely a feat, uh, and especially for the video editor who had to put it all together. Um, oh. But we're hoping to see uh, more and more productions of both plays and musicals um, throughout the fall. That sounds like a lot of work, but it also sounds really exciting. Well, Jacqueline Thrapp and Rose Van Dyne, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank absolutely. you for having me. I just want, and I have one more note. Christmas Fart it takes place in Arvada, Colorado, where I'm from. So oh. I actually wrote an audio drama with some big names that are going to be, uh, it's based, based on Arvada, Colorado. Great. Coming back to the home state. Well, Jacqueline Thrapp... Oh, yeah. Always. (laughs) Jacqueline Thrapp and Rose Van Dyne are both originally from Colorado and are bringing live theater back to New York City with their Broadway karaoke show, Masks and Musicals. The Platinum Divas is a dance team based in Aurora. It teaches young and primarily black girls self-esteem. CPR's Taylor Allen spent a practice with the girls whose ages range from kindergarten through high school. They found they're not that they're learning not just hip-hop and step, they're also learning life lessons. Jalisa Lawler is one of the youngest leaders of the team. She's nine. My way of coaching is like... Sometimes I'm nice, sometimes I get very frustrated because they can't learn the dances. So we have to move on to other dances that they already know. Jalisa is stumbling on a dance the team has to learn by the weekend for one of their first performances since the pandemic shutdowns. It's like a very fast dance. It's majorette and some hip-hop added into it. It's just so fast and I have to remember all the moves in my head. If she doesn't get it, she can't teach it. So lately, she's practicing more hours in her bedroom while her mom watches to make sure she's hitting every move. It's a lot of work, but she says she'll do anything for the girls who feel like family. I just like that I'm here with my sisterhood and that we support each other. Those are big aspects of the team, support and building self-esteem. Shaniqua Jackson helped create the dance team after she coached a Little League cheerleading squad. She wanted to give the girls more attention. We have some girls who come in with zero confidence, and then we tell them, like, you did this amazing, you did this, and they're like, I didn't even notice it until you guys told me, so it's a great feeling, and we try to push different things to help them. Jackson says they created the team seven years ago. It's a group that has become her family. I don't have children, and I can't have children, so it gave me this little warm and fuzzy, nurturing feeling that I didn't think I had. The Platinum Divas take time each week for some bonding. That includes sharing what they appreciate about each other. I like how courageous you are. I like that, like, throughout all of our years, we butt heads, but at the same time, we can, like, have the best laughs. I like about you is you teach us new things every day. At one point, the teenagers remind the younger girls that they aren't alone. This is Ashlyn Salazar, 14, talking to the team. I struggle with depression, so you guys can come to me at any time because I will understand what you are going through. You can sit down and cry, and I will just hug you, hold on to you for like ever. Another dancer, 15-year-old Naija Henderson, has gone to predominantly white schools. The team helps her feel more connected to her identity. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I just was like, you know, I want to be this. I don't want to, like, be black. I want to be white, stuff like that. But then I got around, like, more girls that made me feel more confident in myself and accept me for who I am. And now I'm just confident and just proud of who I am and who I'm becoming as a little young lady. Towards the end of practice, Jaleesa Lawler is still working on her steps. 
She's anxious, but that's normal. I always get scared before I perform, so I pray by myself first. Then I go ask my coach if we could all pray as a team. She prays for us. Jaleesa says as soon as she's in front of a crowd, her anxiety goes away. They usually perform a lot in the summer, but this year's been different. Their upcoming show will be outside for a live audience, and they'll be wearing masks. Jaleesa says when she's with her sisters, that's the best place to be. I'm Taylor Allen, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.